The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Um, We're continuing our study through the Gospel of John, and last week we began studying the 10th chapter. Now, if you were here last week, you remember that I said this is not a good place for a chapter break, all right? Chapter 9 and 10, they're connected. In chapter 9, John records the healing of the man born blind, and then he records the circumstances by which the man came to understand the person and work of Yeshua the Christ. The blind man was first healed physically, and then he's healed spiritually, and he ends up saying, Lord, I believe and he ends up worshiping the Lord Yeshua. Now because of this, the Pharisees cast him out of the synagogue. Because they said anybody that names the name of Christ, you know, we're, they're, they're kicking them out. They're desynagoguing them. Well, chapter 10, allegorically and symbolically, pictures what happened to the blind man as he's cast out of the synagogue and comes into fellowship with Yeshua. So what is historically laid out in 9 is symbolically and allegorically set out in the figure of the shepherd and the sheep in John chapter 10. So 10 is explaining to us in picture form what happened in chapter 9. The Jewish religious leaders of that time were the false shepherds. The leaders of the religious life in the land were for the most part unbelievers. They were so far away from Yahweh it wasn't even funny. Now, there were a few exceptions, like Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, they both came to faith in Yeshua, but for the most part, the nation was unbelieving, and the religious leaders were the ones ultimately responsible for the crucifixion of Yeshua. Now, as we saw in our study, our last study of chapter 10, 10 really draws on the shepherd imagery. And in order to understand what's going on here, we have to have some understanding of the Tanakh and this idea of shepherd or sheep that's developed all the way through Israel's history. See, in the Tanakh, the leaders are criticized. Israel's shepherds, because they failed in their duty. And also we see in these texts a promise of a coming shepherd who will fix things. Well, last week we looked at Ezekiel 34. And that's no doubt part of the background to John chapter 10. Now this morning I want to look at a little passage in Jeremiah, which also gives us background to chapter 10. And again, we have to understand, these New Testament writers draw on the Tanakh. That's their source material. And so the better we understand that, the better we understand what they are saying. Jeremiah 23, 1-6 says, Woe to the shepherds! who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture. And this is what he's doing. He's indicting the shepherds of his day. He's calling them thieves and robbers. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who are tending my people, you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I am about to attend to you For the evil of your deeds, declares Yahweh, then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back 
to their pasture. This is talking about the regathering of Israel. This is what begins to happen at Pentecost when people from all nations are there and they're calling them back to He's calling them back to Himself. And they will be fruitful and multiply. I will also raise up shepherds over them. And they will tend to them. And they will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor will any be missing, declares Yahweh. Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and the right and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called Yahweh, our righteousness. Now, no doubt the religious leaders that Yeshua is talking to, the Pharisees, they knew these passages. They prided themselves on the memory of Scripture. So they knew that a branch, a righteous branch, the Messiah was coming and He would save Judah. And listen, they knew of the works that Yeshua was doing. The whole argument in this text is about He healed a blind man. That's something only Yahweh does. So they're here with the man who healed the blind man, the man that the Scriptures point to, and they didn't get it. They didn't put two to two together. They couldn't see it. And the reason they couldn't see it is they themselves were blind. 9.39 says, And Yeshua said, For judgment I came into the world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. The religious leaders could see physically, but they were blind spiritually. So Yeshua illustrates what had just happened to the blind man by using a story they'd be familiar with. Sheep and a shepherd. And they still don't get it. And in verse 6, the figure of speech, Yeshua spoke them, but they did not understand which those things which He had spoken. He didn't, they didn't get it. What? What about shepherds? What about sheep? We don't, we don't get it. We don't get what you're saying. You know, how can they? Because Yeshua keeps saying, you're not my sheep. And if you're not His sheep, you don't get it. So in response to the lack of understanding by his audience, Yeshua goes on with the illustration. Now his remarks do not constitute, his remarks here in 7-18, through 18, they don't constitute an explanation of what he previously said so much as an expansion. He's expanding on it. He's, he's opening it up more. See, in verses 7-18, through 18, he shifts from the third person. He has said, the one who, he has said he, him, his. Now he goes to the first person singular, I, me, making it very clear, even to those people that are deaf and blind, I'm talking about myself now. I'm the shepherd. I'm the door. I want you all to get, I'm talking about me. All right? So Yeshua describes himself in verses 7 through 10 as the door of the sheep. He says in 10 7, and Yeshua said to them, again, truly, truly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Now, if you remember from last week, I said there were different types of sheepfolds in use in Palestine. There were large sheepfolds where a bunch of different shepherds would come and bring their sheep, and there would a gatekeeper, a doorkeeper would be there assigned, so the shepherds put their sheep in there, they'd go home, they'd go to sleep, and the 
the guard, the gatekeeper would watch and take care of their sheep, and he would come back in the next day, and the shepherds would call their sheep out. Well, in verses 1 through 5, they're talking about that large communal sheep pen. But now Yeshua moved from talking about the communal village sheep pen to individual pens that the shepherds would have themselves constructed specifically for their own flock. Because a lot of times they'd be out. They're out in the pasture somewhere. They're out in the mountain somewhere. And it comes at night and they need to have a place to put their sheep for safety. And sometimes they'd use a cave. Sometimes they would make a fenced-in area. They would either use an old structure that's there that was you know, an old fort or something and put them in there. Or they'd take a bunch of briar bushes and make an enclosure. And there was always a gap there where the door was. And once the sheep had been brought into the sheep pen for the night the shepherd would lay down in the gap and he would sleep there. The mouth of the cave or the gap of the fence so that if any sheep tried to leave, they had to go over him. And if any predators tried to get in, they had to get in over him. So he literally served as the door for the sheep pen. Now he says, truly, truly, I say to you. Now this double amen found in the initial position of the sentence, is always used to draw our attention to something important that Yeshua is about to say. The NET Bible renders it, I tell you the solemn truth. And what is the solemn truth? He says, I am the door of the sheep. And now again, his audience gets this. They understand sheep pens, they understand sheep, they understand shepherds. He's the door. Both here and in verse 9, Yeshua claims, I am the door. And now in verses 1-5, through Yeshua the shepherd enters the sheep pen through the door, but here He is the door. The door of the sheep is distinguished from the door of the sheepfold in verse 1. The latter was divinely appointed means by which the Messiah would come. It talked about the Messiah, the Messianic office and the qualifications He had to have to enter that door. Now He is saying, I am the door. And in this Gospel, Yeshua uses seven metaphorical I Am statements to define His role as a Savior and Messiah. And these sayings carry strong overtones of claims to divinity. You know, I, I just have to laugh when someone you know, tries to bring up the fact, well, I don't think, I don't think Jesus is God. I'm like, and you don't know, have a clue about the Bible. Because, I mean, He says it so many times, it's like, Something's wrong with you if you're missing this. I am. That recalls the divine name revealed to Moses in the experience of the burning bush. I am, he says. Ehia in the Hebrew. That's what God said to Moses. Ehia, asher, ehia. I am who I am. And they're like, okay, he's using the I am. I am. And he identifies himself. He says, I am the bread of life. I am Yahweh who provides life. He says, I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. Then he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And finally, he says, I'm the true vine. He is claiming divinity in every one of these statements. I am the door, he says. Laying down in the opening of the sheepfold, the shepherd is the protector. He's the savior of the sheep. That's why he's in that doorway. 
He himself is the door that prevents entry of any wild animal seeking to destroy the sheep. He keeps the sheep from going out. He provides access in that doorway to the sustenance needed for life. He lets them out, takes them back in. G. Campbell Morgan, he tells of a conversation he had with Sir George Adam Smith, who was a scholar who had spent a lot of time in the Near East. And Smith told of meeting a shepherd there who showed him the fold where the sheep spent the night. And it consisted of four walls with the way in. And Smith asked, that is where you go for the night? Yes, the shepherd said. And when the sheep are all in there, they're perfectly safe. But there's no door, said Smith. And the shepherd said, I am the door. And this shepherd is not a Christian man. He was an Arab shepherd. But he's using the same language that Yeshua used. And he explained further, When the light is gone and the sheep are inside, I lie in that open space. No sheep ever goes out but across my body. No wolf ever comes in unless across my body. I am the door. Believer, Yeshua, the door, stands between us and anything that would hurt or destroy us in a spiritual sense. In addition, Yeshua supplies us with everything we need for, for our life spiritually. He provides salvation, safety, sustenance to all those who enter in through Him. Man, I'll tell you, I don't know about you, but it gets me excited to think I'm in that sheepfold and the only way in is Yeshua is laying there. Nothing comes by me, to me, without coming through Him. And I don't get out without going through Him. Now in the text, there's an emphasis upon the personal pronoun here, I. He says, I am the door. Almost as if he were saying, there's others who claim to be the door by which we enter through the door, but I, I alone am the door. And that's further stressed by the definite article here. He says, I am the door. And what Yeshua is saying is not that he's one and he's the one and only entry point into Christianity. There's no salvation. There's no spiritual security. There's no eternal life apart from Him. He is the only door. You ever heard someone say, oh, I, believe in, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Buddha. And I believe in, you know, they're adding all this. They just add Him to their collection. No, he's, the, he's it. It's exclusive, people. It's Him or nothing. And the whole of the Bible stresses the fact that there is only one way to eternal life. Peter put it this way. There is salvation in no one else. Nobody. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Paul put it this way, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ, Yeshua. That's the only one who mediates for us. It's only through Him. Lazarus puts it this way later in 1 John. He says, And the test." And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. So Yeshua the door is the sole means by which the sheep may enter the safety of the fold or the pasture. The thought is the same as what Yeshua was going to say later in this Gospel when He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. To anybody who claims to even worship Yahweh, if they don't believe in Yeshua, they don't really worship Yahweh because you can't get to Yahweh except through Yeshua. 
He is the door. The only door. Nobody comes but through Him. Now, Yeshua's claim to be the door renders invalid all other offers of spiritual life and salvation. Now, the exclusive and judgmental nature of this claim is abhorrent to our humanistic, postmodern, post-Christian society with its non-discriminatory, live and let live, all roads lead to God, all religions are the matter of human inventions mentality. It's equally offensive to the Pharisees of his day. People don't like, that's too exclusive. You're, you're leaving people out by that. Well, I didn't write it. God did, okay? And it is exclusive. It's very exclusive. You either come through that door or you don't come. It's either Yeshua or it's nothing. That's just the way it is. And the church of Yeshua the Christ must not allow itself to be intimidated by the charge or you're just being too exclusive. It is exclusive. That's what the Bible teaches. It's through Yeshua and it's only through Yeshua. He says in verse 8, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't hear him. Now, when he says all who came before me, he's not talking about the prophets or the men of God of the old covenant. Yahweh gave Israel prophets like Moses and Jeremiah, priests like Aaron and Samuel, and kings like David and Solomon to shepherd the people. He's referring to those leaders who preyed on the sheep and used them for their own selfish ends. And some of them were priests, some of them were kings, some of them were prophets. The false shepherds that Ezekiel and Jeremiah castigates that we've read about in those texts. Now the use of the present tense here are thieves and robbers. I think it's an important clue that, to give us an understanding that these thieves and robbers are the leaders in Yeshua's own day. He's referring to the Pharisees who have come to challenge His authority, challenge His origins in front of the people. You know, the Pharisees certainly thought of themselves as the gatekeepers to the kingdom of God. Matthew 23.13, Yeshua says, Woe to you! That woe is a pronunciation of judgment. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! Hypocrites! <laughs> He's talking to the religious elite of the day. All right, And listen, these people weren't just the religious elite. They were also... You know, they had power over the people. It wasn't just the religious spiritual authority. They had physical power over the people. They were the ones in charge. And he calls them hypocrites. He says, you shut up the kingdom of heaven from people. Why? Because you're teaching wrongly. For you do not enter in yourselves. Oh, that would have been hard for them to hear. Nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. You're not getting in and you're keeping other people out. Strong indictment from the gentle Yeshua. He goes on to say, but the sheep did not hear them. Now he's repeating here the truth he stated in 10.5, that the sheep know the voice of their shepherd and a false shepherd they're not going to follow. Sheep will only follow the voice of their shepherd. That's why he continues to say, these are my sheep. Now I want to play you a clip, a short video clip here, because I want you to see, I want, you to, I want to demonstrate to you what they're talking about here. In this clip, you'll see several people come up to the gate, the fence, and they call the sheep. Now, I want you to watch the sheep. When these other people are calling, they don't even look up. They don't make a sound. They just ignore these other people. When the shepherd comes, you see a difference.
Those sheep don't look at the sheep. They don't even look up. All of a sudden, the sheep are making noise. They got their attention. Okay, now you got a visible illustration, okay? The sheep, when the shepherd calls, the sheep, they ignored it. They didn't even make a sound. They didn't even look up when the other people were calling. And this guy calls, and oh, that's our shepherd. Boom, they all perk up, start making noise, and they all start running for him. I am the door. If any man enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Now, Lazarus has already described Yeshua as the source of living water, the water of life. He's described him as the bread of life. And now within the metaphor of sheep, Yeshua provides the pasture of life. He says, if any man enters through me, he will be saved. Now, the word saved here in this context probably refers to the old covenant connotation of physical deliverance. See, being saved refers to protecting the sheep from predators that would kill them. They're safe. They're delivered. But Lazarus, as he does, he often uses a double you know, idea of whatever the terms he's using. He uses overlapping meaning. And so he's obviously talking here that Yeshua gives us physical, I mean, spiritual deliverance. He saves us. He says they'll go in and out and find pasture. Now, in and out here is a metaphor. And if you don't understand the metaphor, you're never going to get it. But William Barclay says this. In and out was the Jewish way of describing a life that is absolutely secure and safe. You get that from going in and out? You go in and out. How would we get that? See, in a country back then, the country's under siege and the people had to stay inside the walls. But when there's peace, when the ruler is upholding the law and order, people are free to come and go. They go in and out. This language is used throughout Scripture. Moses used this language praying for his successor. Numbers 27. May Yahweh, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come in before them and who will lead them out and bring them in. May the new leader take them out and bring them in. In other words, may they have freedom and that the congregation of Yahweh will not be like sheep who have no shepherd. Now it's interesting. They connect the in and out with the shepherd and sheep analogy again. Just like we see Again, the New Testament writers are drawing on the language from the Tanakh. This is speaking of security. May the leader bring them out and bring them in. Speaking of safety, we see the same language used in 2 Samuel 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David, a Hebron, and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. 
Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. So here's David, the leader. He's bringing peace. He's bringing safety to them. And Yahweh said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will be ruler over them. Again, we have the in and out connected with the shepherding the sheep. David's the one who gave them security. David is the one who gave them safety. So going in and out has the idea, is a reference to freedom, safety, and provision. Going in and out pictures safety. Finding pasture pictures the sustenance that the Good Shepherd provides. Believers, we have security, absolute security in Christ. And let me say this as nicely as I can. But anyone who believes you can lose your salvation doesn't understand what salvation is. Because our salvation is in Christ. Our security is in Christ. It's not in anything we did. We didn't earn it. We're not going to lose it. Look at the security we have. Paul says, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Yeshua our Lord. What can separate us? Is there anything he left out in the list? I had a man say to me once, well, we're, we can separate ourselves. And I said, you weren't created? Because it says any created thing. That scratches that off the list. Okay? In Ezekiel 25.5, pasture refers to the rest of the kingdom. So Yeshua is the only means of entry into the kingdom and all its blessing. And in 10.10, he says the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. We've talked about that. These are the false leaders. All right, They're there to do harm to the people. Opposite of that, Yeshua says, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Yeshua not only came to bring life to His people, He came to bring the best quality of life you can imagine. And what is being emphasized here is the abundant and the overflowing quality of the life which Yeshua came to give. Now, I don't think that Yeshua is making a distinction here between two levels of Christian life. You know, one being superior, one being more abundant. Than the other. What Yeshua is talking about here is the life that he gives to all who believe in him. Just as he said that those who believe in him will never hunger or thirst, and those who believe in him will never walk in darkness, so here he promises abundant life. Listen, people, when Yeshua gives life, he gives it to the max. So I think that abundant life is available to all believers. Now, did you catch that? It's available. But I don't think all believers enjoy abundant life. See, within Christianity, everybody has life. But there are, think, are few within Christianity that enjoy the abundant life. In our physical world, there may be two people who are alive. One may be very sick. They both have life, but one doesn't have abundant life. 
They might be miserable. Or we may think of an individual who's healthy and another individual has life and health, but one of them is in prison. They don't have liberty. So they don't have an abundant life. They have a very limited life. Both have life, both have health, but one is freedom. His life is abundant. Well, there's a great deal of difference in the experiences of life. And now that which is true of the physical, I think is also true in the spiritual. Every individual who has believed in the Lord Yeshua has spiritual life. But I don't think many Christians have abundant spiritual life. Why? If the abundant life is available to all, why don't all have it? What separates? How come some Christians have a just this abundant life? When I when I'm talking about the abundant life, I'm I'm not this has nothing to do with prosperity, physical prosperity. I'm talking about peace. I'm talking about joy. I'm talking about contentment. Why do some people have those things, Christians, and others don't? Well, I think it has to do with obedience. The abundant life is only available to those who walk in obedience. It's for the sheep that follow the shepherd. Again, this has nothing to do with prosperity. We're talking about inner peace, inner joy, contentment that comes from walking with Christ. Let's look at some of the New Testament texts that show us the blessings that come from obedience. Because I think that most Christians don't have a clue about this. They're saved. They've trusted Christ. But their lives are miserable. Why? Because as Christians, they're trying to do things their own way, go their own way, live their own life, and it just doesn't work. Because as Christians, we're meant to follow Christ. So you can be a Christian and not follow Him. You can kind of do things the way you want to do and see how that works out for you. So much of the New Testament speaks about this. Let's look at a few verses. Uh, Jude one twenty one. Jude is writing to Christians. And he tells Christians, keep yourselves in the love of God. Waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Yeshua the Christ to eternal life. Now, the word keep here is tereo, from teras. It means a guard or a warden. It means keep an eye on Keep something in view, hold firmly, attend carefully, watch over. Yeshua uses this word in His prayer to the Father for His disciples. In John 17, 11, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Terao speaks of guarding something which is in one's possession. It means to watch as one would guard something precious. So we're to keep ourselves in the love of God. And keep is an aorist imperative. It's a command calling for urgent attention. Yourselves is plural here, indicating that Jude is addressing not one person. He's addressing the congregation, the church, the church body. He's calling for saints to keep themselves in the love of God. In here is a locative of sphere, indicating as Weiss translates it, within the sphere of God's love. Keep yourselves in the sphere of that love. What does it mean? 
Is he saying that we need to keep God loving us? You've got to do the right thing so God will love you. No, 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 that's not at all what he's talking about. Look at verse 1 of Jude. Jude, a bondservant of Yeshua the Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Yeshua the Christ. Called here is from the Greek word kletos, which is a verbal adjective from kaleo, to call. Now, every time this term is used in the epistles in Revelation, it means the same thing as chosen. It's a synonym for chosen. And it's the main word in the sentence. The other perfect passive participles are an apposition or explanation of this main one. Because we are called, we're beloved in God the Father and kept by Yeshua. This is the way you would understand the grammar here. All right? To those who are called. We know that once God loves and saves someone, once God does the work of salvation in the life of a sinner, it means that person, listen to me, that person has every one of their sins forgiven. Past, present, future. Every sin is covered. Every offense, every transgression that you will ever commit has already been paid for. Jude is not telling believers to keep themselves saved. He's not saying, don't get yourself in a position where God will no longer love you. We know he's not saying that because verse 24 says, not to him who was able to keep you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless. He begins with our security. Jude ends with our security. He's not questioning the security and tells us we need to do something to be saved. So Jude made it clear in verse 1, the called are kept. The word for kept in verse 1 and keep in 21 are exact same Greek words. So verse 21, Jude is telling those who are kept in Christ to keep themselves in the love of God. Now Weiss translates this with watchful care, keep yourselves within the sphere of God's love. Now, to keep yourselves in the love of God simply means keep yourself in the place where you're experiencing the blessing that God's love brings. It means to stay in the sphere of God's love. William MacDonald writes, the love of God can be compared to sunshine. The sun is always shining. But when something comes between us and the sun, we're no longer in the sunshine. Keeping yourselves in the love of God requires consistent self-discipline on your part. You can never get out from under the love of God as far as God is concerned, but you can get out from the blessings that the love of God bestows on those who walk in obedience. What does it mean to be in the love of God? What do we have to do to keep ourselves in the love of God? Look at 1 John 5, 1-3. He says, whoever believes that Yeshua is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. See, a lot of people miss this somehow. But he's defining it. You, know, you want to know, we are called to love God, are we not? Every believer called to love God? Well, okay, here's how it is. This is what it, the love of God is that we keep His commandments. I've had people say, I love God, and I'm like, not according to your life. And they get shocked about that. You're like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, you're sinning. You're doing this, right? Yes. Persistent sin. Well, the Bible says, 
you love me if you keep my commandments. It means to walk in obedience to His revealed will. When you remain obedient, you'll enjoy all the fullness of that love. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's how you demonstrate your love for me. It's not some mushy feeling, oh, I just feel so sentimental towards you. That's nice, but he would really like it if you also obeyed him. Okay? John 14, 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, this is the one who loves me. Christ says, if you love me, keep my commandments. That is, do the will of God. Obey the Father. Obey what the Bible tells us. Be obedient. Don't be rebellious. Don't usurp your authority over the Word of God. God is admonishing and encouraging us. Keep yourselves in that love. Because when you're in this love, you're going to enjoy a life that's far superior to anything you can imagine. When a believer walks in obedience, he is demonstrating that he loves Yahweh. Because he's saying, Yahweh, your will is superior to mine. Because I want to do this, but your word says don't do that. So I'm going to do what you say to do because I love you more than I love me. When we walk in obedience, we abide in His love. John 15.10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's command and abide in His love. See, keeping yourself in the love of God is synonymous with keeping the commandments. Notice what Paul said to the Thessalonians. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. <clears throat> Alright? They've given them commands from the Lord. They're doing them. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. So they're doing the commands and he connects that with the love of God. God is telling us that the demonstration of the believer's love for God is in keeping the commandments. Now, when I say that, I know people go crazy. Commandments? Are you talking about Torah? Are we to keep the 613 commands of Torah? No! As believers, we're not under Old Covenant law. We are under the law of Christ. Galatians 6.2 Bear one of those burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? It's the law of love. Christ boiled it down to two commandments when they asked Him. Love Yahweh with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We're under the laws of the new covenant. Romans 8.2 For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Yeshua has set you free from the law of sin and death. This is Torah of the Spirit. It introduced to a whole new facet of Torah. This is the new covenant. Paul says that the Torah of the Spirit set us free. Talking about set slaves free, it's Exodus language. Those in Christ are brought out of Egypt of sin and death and made citizens of the kingdom of God. Through the death of Christ, we become dead to the law of sin and death. That's old covenant law. Now, believers often ask the question since we are saved by grace through faith and faith alone, does it matter how we live once we're saved? Does it matter? I mean, I just said, your sins, past, present, future, are all forgiven. So does it matter? Absolutely. Absolutely. It makes a tremendous difference. Listen to me. Please listen to me. Not in your eternal destiny. If you have believed in Christ, you're going to heaven. So, okay, I'm going to heaven. I can do what I want, right? Yeah, but you're going to be miserable. Because you're a child of God. 
You're meant for something else. What I'm talking about, it makes a difference in your quality of life right here, right now. You want to live a life of peace, joy, contentment, satisfaction? Just walk with Yahweh. He created this world. He created you. You do what He says and things go great. Now, I'm not talking again. I'm not talking about physically everything will be fine. I won't have any problems in life. That's not what I'm talking about. See, when you're in fellowship with Yahweh, it doesn't matter what's happening around you. Okay? There's a storm going on outside, but guess who's in the boat with you? So it doesn't matter what's happening out there. Let me show you this. Let's look at Yeshua's Sermon on the Mount. In this sermon, he delivered a message that really contained all the ethical precepts of his teaching. This is the Sermon on the Mount is kingdom teaching. Here's how we're to live in the kingdom of God. These are principles. And Yeshua lays out, you know, in this, love your enemies. Ah, man. That's that's just trouble right there, okay? Why does he got to teach stuff like that, okay? See, Muslims, you know, the Quran teaches, kill your enemies. Yeshua teaches, love your enemies. It'd be easier to be Muslim, you know? That sounds like more fun, you know? I mean, how do I love my enemies? I don't love them, they make me mad, but Yeshua says, we're different people. We're not in this world. We're to love our enemies. He says, you're to forgive those who wrong you. You know what's funny? If Christians live like this, more people would be interested in Christianity. We're to forgive those who wrong you again and again and again, he says. Oh, that's it. You did enough. I'm scratching you off. That's the last time. I'm putting up. I'm not. No more forgiveness. That's not what he says. He says, you're to do to others as you'd like to have them do unto you. And then in the conclusion of this message, he lives out all these ethical principles. Here's how to live in the kingdom. Then he tells this little story, this little parable at the end. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words, the sermon he has just given, you hear these words of mine and you act on them. You actually do them. Maybe compared to a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain fell, the floods came, The winds blew, slammed against the house, and yet it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, you don't act on them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, slammed against the house and it fell, and great was its fall. He does not act upon them. You know, you hear the words, you hear the teachings, but... Yeah, that's good, but and you might even say amen when they're being taught, but you're just not doing it. He says, that house fell, and it was a great fall. Now let me ask you, what's the essence of this parable? What's it illustrating? What separates the wise builder from the foolish builder? It's obedience. It's acting on the teaching. Listen, here's what you have to understand. There's nothing in this parable about believing. Because he's talking to believers. He's laying out kingdom principles. This is how you live in the kingdom. And guess what? Unbelievers are not in the kingdom. So they don't have to worry about this. Okay? This is not teaching you act on something you get to go to heaven. That's not what it's talking. It's talking to believers. Believers, here's what I want you to do. Here's how you live it out. Nothing about believing. The stress in this parable is on doing. That's very important. We're saved by faith alone. But here Yeshua is talking to those who believe in Him and He's stressing the importance of obedience. He says something like, 
It's important that you actually do the things I've told you, not just you think about them or think they're good ideas or whatever. It's good that you actually follow them. Now, there's some questions that we need to answer to understand this text. What do the houses of the wise and foolish builders represent? And what storms is he talking about? And how do we build so we can withstand the storms? Let's begin with identifying the houses. I suggest the house represent our lives. Each of us is building a life by everything we do. A life that will respond to the many ups and downs that come our way. Yeshua is saying in this parable, if you want to protect your life from damage, you've got to be wise. You've got to obey my commandments, my rules for your life. Now please notice that the obedience results in a quality of life, a preservation of life, an abundance of life. This teaching about obedience in life Preservation runs all through the Scriptures. Later in the Gospel of John, Yeshua says this, If you keep My commandments, you'll abide in My love, just as I have kept My Father's commands and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you so that My joy may be in you and your joy may be full. He says, keep the commandments, you'll experience joy. See, it's through those keeping of the commandments that we find the abundant life. God delights in our obedience because everything God commands us to do is for our own good. We find that hard to believe sometimes. But it's for our own good. And so what God is really delighting in when He delights in our obedience, He's delighting in our joy. Our abundant life that comes from that obedience. Now what storms is Yeshua talking about here? Well, I think the storms are the things that threaten our well-being, threaten our life. This could be literal storms. could be tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, which may take away everything we own, may even take away our loved ones. How do you respond to tragedies reveals the quality of the building that you've built. Will we be emotionally devastated? We'll be able to stand strong, willing to continue without despair. See, the world looks at us. If you name the name of Christ, the world's looking at you for fault. They want to criticize what you believe so they can put you down, so they can feel okay in their position. Because they're kind of convicted that. Now they say, you say you're a Christian. So they watch your life. And you know, the happy, go-lucky Christian that everything's wonderful, everything's roses, and you're smiling all the time when your life's perfect. They're like, big deal. I do that when my life's perfect and I'm not a Christian. But when your life crumbles and you still have a joy, you still have a peace, then the world sits up and takes notice. They're like, hey, how do they do that? They should be miserable. They seem to be okay. How? Because when they're with Yeshua, it doesn't matter what's happening around them. See, these storms may also involve figurative storms such as illness, loss of loved ones, financial setbacks. Things which take away your health, your family, your possessions. Again, how we respond to tragedies reveals the quality of the building that we have built. Will we be emotionally devastated? Will we be able to stand strong? Will we continue on without despair? Now you may be wondering how obedience to God helps us weather storms. The answer is that when we live in obedience, we live in fellowship. Because we walk with God. Because we're following His will. We're doing His will. Look at Philippians 4. This is Paul talking here. And 
Paul was an incredible Christian. He says, not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I'm in. Anybody here can say that? Whatever circumstance I'm in, I'm content. Do you understand this man's circumstances? Huh? He was beaten with rods. He had many stripes put upon him. He was stuck in prison. He was shipwrecked. He went through all kinds of... He says, I learned to be content. He says, I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. Which, personally, I think living in prosperity for a Christian is a lot harder than humble means. Because you live in prosperity, you all of a sudden get to the point where, I don't need God, i got it all under control. A person with humble means is every day say, give me this day my daily bread. He says, in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Then he says this. this. This phrase is always pulled out of context. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Does this mean he can leap tall buildings at a single bound? Run faster than a locomotive? Stop a speeding bullet? No. Keep it in context of what all he's just said. He's talking about the circumstances of life. I can live with humble means. I can live with abundance. Whatever circumstance I'm in, I can do it. Why? Because I can do all these things through Christ. He's saying I can live through the difficult circumstances of life through Christ who strengthens me. It means what what Paul's saying is because I am in communion with Christ, because I walk in fellowship, the power of Christ is available to me for every need. He can't do all things because he's a Christian. He can do all things because he's living in an obedient relationship to the Lord. He's abiding in Christ. So Philippians 4.13 gives us the positive. John 15.5 gives us the negative. I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Apart from me, he says, you can do nothing. Not very little. And what does, he, what does that mean? Apart from me, you can do nothing. I can't drive a car apart from Christ. I can't build a house, can't make a sandwich. What, what is it? No, he's talking about spiritually. You can do nothing of spiritual benefit apart from me. Now, Philippians, he says, I can do all things. John 15, you can do nothing. So with me, living in dependence, in obedience to Christ, you can do all things. Without Him, going your own way, you can do nothing. Philippians 4.13 is not a promise that can be claimed by every Christian. It's for those believers who are abiding in Christ. Because when we walk in fellowship with Him, we have the power available to deal with life. Out of fellowship, we have no power. Yeshua didn't say, you better obey my words or the Father's going to punish you. He said, you better listen to and follow through on my words so you'll be able to survive the storms of life. See, the Christian life is compared to walking. Walking becomes a visual aid to teach us how to live. In Thessalonians 4.1, he says, Finally, my brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Yeshua that as you have received from us instructions as you ought to walk and please God. So there's a way that we can walk. We can live. So he's talking about living your life. You live in such a way that you please God. Now when we talk about pleasing God, 
Again, we need to make a distinction between our position and our practice. In position, you and I are in Christ. We are as righteous as Christ. Okay? That's very pleasing to God because we're in His Son. We're righteous before Him. The good news of the Bible, listen to this, that the good news of the Bible, this is what really blows my mind, is not only that all your debts have been paid, that's true, Christian, all your debts, Christ paid all your debts, but also listen to this, you have no ability to go back into debt again. Not only are your debts paid, you can't go back into debt. Because it's all covered. It's all taken care of. You know, people file bankruptcy and they get, okay, I'm free now. Guess what? They can be in trouble again. Not spiritually. Mm -hmm. This is grace, people. The grace of God bestowed upon us. Our debts are paid forever, for always. So when I'm talking about pleasing God, I'm I'm talking about how you live. Your daily conduct. We are to live in such a way that pleases God by the things that we do. Pleasing God should be a way of life. And when we live that way, we experience blessing. You know, learning to walk, learning to live to please God, is a matter of biblical instruction. You want to learn how to live to please God? Guess what? You've got to spend time in the Word of God. Because living to please God is not natural. It's not innate. It just doesn't happen. Without the Word, we don't know what we're supposed to do. We don't know how we're supposed to live. And this is why you read the Word of God over and over and over. Because as soon as you get to the end of the book, guess what? You forgot a lot of things you already read. I I can't tell you how many times I've read the Bible cover to cover. And every time I read it, I find something that wasn't there the last time I read it. And I'm like, how did I miss that? And it's like, that's an awesome verse. How could I miss that all this time? It's living. And God brings to our attention what we need to know. But if you want to be reminded how you're supposed to live, you want to be reminded who God is and what He's done for you, you spend time in the Word of God. We're being reminded over and over. And we need reminders. So living in the abundant life, the life that the Lord talking about, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. He doesn't just want us getting by people. He wants us thriving as Christians. But most Christians can't thrive because most pulpits are not teaching the Word of God. And so people are not getting teaching. They go and they hear three points in a poem and they feel good and they leave and they're like, that's ah, wonderful. And they get to the struggles of life and their house is built on the sand because there's no basis to it. We've got to build our lives on the Word of God. So the abundant life comes from living in the will of God, following the precepts that the Lord has laid out. I came that they may have life and have it to the abundance. Christ's commands for our lives are given for our protection and happiness. You know, believe it or not, God's not trying to make us miserable. Well, don't do this. I don't want you having fun. Now, I know there's some churches you would feel that way, okay? If you have fun, you you must be in sin. But I think that's absolutely ridiculous. I think the life that Christ brings us is the life of continual joy and happiness and and just blessedness. You know, there's a a wide host of commands that God has given 
that the world says are ridiculous. Commands about the sanctity and exclusivity of the marriage relationship. And by the way, just in case you know, marriage is between a man and a woman. That's the only marriage there is. There's no other marriage. That's what the Bible says. The Bible talked about marriage. God's the one who instituted marriage, so without God, you know, you know. You can have a civil union between two people, or soon, between a person and an animal, you know. I mean, that's the way our society's going, but the Bible says it's between a man and a woman, because that, that's how he laid it out. And the Bible gives us restrictions of sexual activity to marriage. The emphasis on others before self, all through the Bible. We're supposed to consider others better than ourselves. Wow, if we could just follow Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than himself. What kind of world would it be? Instead of fighting for our rights, which we do continually, we're looking at other people and their rights more than ours. You know, the principles laid out in the Bible like Giving forgiveness freely when asked for. Like, honesty is the best policy. The materialism is not the road to happiness. Every one of these rules, plus others that are found in the Word of God, are given for our good. And if we're smart, we'll realize that and seek to live by God's guidelines so we can live the abundant Christian life. I look back over my life, and I think my life would be a total wreck apart from the Word of God. Because I would go in a to- I'm always trying to go in a totally different direction. The Word of God is constantly pulling me back and the Spirit keeping me on track and reminding me, don't do that because, you know, I'm like, oh, yeah. Going your own way doesn't, <laughs> doesn't lead to a lot of happiness and joy, people. I've seen a lot of people try it and it just ends up in misery. And, and I, when I see a Christian who's totally miserable, I tell them, you know why you're miserable? God wants you in fellowship with Him, and you're out of it. And they know it. Too often they just rather stay in their misery, I guess. Matthew Henry. Familiar with him? Everybody heard of Matthew Henry? Uh, everybody should have heard of Matthew Henry, okay. He's a well-known pastor, Bible commentator. You know, got a nice commentary set. He was on his deathbed in 1714. He was only 52 years old. He'd suffered the loss of his first wife and three children. Now, he could have complained about his early death. I mean, I'm serving God. I'm a pastor. I'm writing commentaries to help people down through the ages. Why am I dying so young? But he said to a friend, you have been used to take notice of the sayings of dying men. He says, this is mine. A life spent in service of God and communion with Him is the most comfortable and pleasant life that one can live in the present world. I have to agree with them 100% on that. People, the abundant life is available to all believers. And it's what Christ wants for every child of His. But it's only experienced by those who walk in fellowship with Him. And here's what we have to understand. Obedience brings blessing. I think too often we think obedience brings restriction. This is fun. I want to do this. But if the Lord says don't, there's a reason for it. There's a purpose behind it. He cares about our joy. And again, what, you know, this, 
when we talk about the abundant life, we have to take circumstances out of the picture. We're not talking about having good circumstances. Paul didn't have good circumstances. The man was <laughs> always praising God, always happy. I mean, can you imagine being whipped and then put in stocks in the inner prison because you've been preaching the gospel? We'd be ticked off. God, I'm trying to serve you now. I'm beating bloody. I'm down this dumb dungeon. What's Paul doing down there in the dungeon? Hey, Silas, let's sing. Let's sing Amazing Grace. Let's, let's lift our voices. Can you? That's the abundant life, people. His circumstances didn't bother him. He said, whatever circumstance I'm in, I've learned to deal with it. It's where God wants me. My contentment is in the relationship with my God. That's a spiritual thing. And when we have that intimate relationship with our Father, life is a beautiful thing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, I apologize for my inadequacy of delivering this message. Lord, I just feel this is such an important thing for your people to understand. You want our joy. You want our happiness. You want us to live in peace. And those are all available to every believer, Father. I pray that we'd realize we need to quit going our own way, doing our own thing. And we need to walk in fellowship. We need to follow our shepherd. As sheep, the only thing that needs to matter to us is the voice of our shepherd. May we follow you closely, Lord. Teach us, Father, from your word, I pray. I pray that by your spirit, Lord, you would convict us where we need it. Drive us to the word, Lord. Let, let us Help us to understand the benefit you would have for us by following you. Amen. All right. Questions or comments? You know, as I'm doing this message, I'm thinking this is a controversial topic. Because whenever you talk about obedience, you know, some Christians get like upset, like, what? Well, we're free. We got grace. Does grace mean just do whatever you want? So, anyways, this is my take on it. So, any questions or comments? Nope. Awful silence. Got nothing to say. So if you fall away, do you really believe in the first place? Like if you really fall away, like you never, like if none of it, like none of it ever happens. Well, you know, that's a question that I don't think any of us could ever answer. You know, they say someone falls away. Was was he, if he fell away? If he's not, a, you can't become an unchristian. Okay, if you're a Christian, you can't be unchristian. All right, because you're in Christ. All right, so unless Christ gets kicked out of the Trinity, you're secure. But we see some people, you know, they're in church for a while, and then they deviate, they go out, and they, you know, does that mean they're not a Christian? I don't know. I don't know if they ever believed in the first place. I would go to them and warn them, encourage them. But usually, a lot of people like that, you see them, they're absolutely miserable. And to me, that gives me reason to smile because I think you're a child of God, and God's dealing with you. You know, if you can walk away from God and be totally happy in your life all together, I, I would question that. I would say, you know, as a child of God, you're meant to live righteously and holy. And when you don't, some, it's just like something's not right. You're going against your nature. All right? Because we're partakers of the divine nature. Sharon. Uh, I, I agree, and I know, you know, 
Well, I agree, of course, with what you said about obedience, but I can't help but think that obedience is predicated with trust. I mean, you have to know and trust and have confidence in the one you're going to obey freely. And there's only one way to trust him, and that's to know him. And I, I don't know. And so it just goes back to everything you're always saying about studying the Word. Because how do you trust? You know, we talk about loving somebody you don't know. But how do you trust somebody? You can know somebody a long time and not know them. But the trust is what, I don't know. That's what stands out for me, which gives me the ability, power, desire to be obedient. Because he's so trustful. Right? That's right. You're, you're exactly right. Whether I'm okay or not, because I'm okay. And it's a cycle, people. You know, that's, and the whole thing goes back to the Word of God. When you're in the Word, you learn who Yahweh is. That's the only self-revelation He's given is the Word of God. You, want to know, you can't trust a person you don't know. You can't do that. You have to know them. You have to have some reason to trust them. And at, she's right. When you trust somebody, well, they said do this. I better do that because I trust them. They have my good at heart. They have my well-being. They have my care. You know, this, this week, David and Shannon came over with the kids and, and Kathy was in the pool with Jocelyn. And she spent some time with her. You know, they were in the pool for a while and she was trying to teach her how to swim and, you know, teaching her to blow bubbles and do this stuff. And she put Jocelyn up on the deck and she said, jump. And Jocelyn just jumped off that deck. And I'm like, oh, she's either crazy or she really trusts Kathy, you know, because she can't swim, you know, but it's just that's she was trust. There was trust there. There's a bond built between those two. So she trusts Kathy. And that's what it's about. When we trust him. We do obey him because the reason he said don't do this is my good because he's a good God. He's not trying to torture me. He's not trying to make me miserable. It's the exact opposite. He loves us. That's the whole thing. And that's, that's our conviction. When we understand that God is a God of love, God is absolutely sovereign. So anything, everything that happens is according to his plan. And he loves us. I mean, you put those together and it's like, we're, we're, we're good to go well, no matter what. I got the absolute sovereign of the universe loves me, <laughs> okay? So whatever happens, it's for my good and his glory. Do you have a question, Sean? Yeah, um, pertaining to what Garthry said about um, being saved and salvation, with Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 22, we talk about the totalitarian life of a Christian. You know a tree by its fruit. Um, a good tree produces good fruit. Right. A bad tree produces bad fruit. So, if a person goes up to be saved and then goes out and still lives like the devil. Well, that's that's the thing. Now, that, that text in Matthew 7 there, you'll know them by their fruit. He goes on to explain the fruit is the thing they say. It's what they say. All right, so that's the fruit. What do people say about Christ is the instance in that thing. But that, that's the whole thing. I mean, you can have a Christian, a person who becomes a Christian, and then falls into sin. All right, David, a man after God's own heart. Did he fall into sin? I mean, he takes this woman belonging to another man, and he has sex with her, and she gets pregnant. And so what does he do to cover it up? He murders her husband. He murders him. 
Now, you look at David's life at that point in time, you say, that man's not a Christian. I beg to differ with you. He's a man of their God's own heart, which is mind-blowing, okay? It's mind-blowing. So we can't, we can't judge people at the state of life they're in. People go through things, you know? But I always judge people by their testimony. You tell me you're a Christian, I would, if someone does tell me they're a Christian, I would share with them the gospel because in this country, everybody's a Christian because it's a Christian country, right? Wrong. So I make sure they understand the gospel. But if somebody understands the gospel and says they believe the gospel, I would treat them as a brother. But if they're living in sin, I would say, you know sin is damaging and what you're doing is going to ruin your life. But it, it, you know, it's, it's too easy to judge everybody that doesn't, because our standards are basically where we're at. You ever notice that? Whatever I do, I'm, I'm good. Okay, I'm doing the right things. Now, this guy's below me. He's not doing what I'm doing, so he must not be in. But there's somebody above you judging you because you do something because their standards are high. You know, and it just never ends, you know. And I don't think we're meant to judge one another, okay? We're meant to love one another and care for one another. So I don't know who's a Christian and who's not, truly. You know, but I know this. Christians can get in sin. See it all through the Bible. The warnings in Scripture, the exhortations in Scripture to live righteously are because we're so prone to do wrong. So over and over, all the epistles, live right, live holy, walk holy, walk in obedience, because we need that. Most people don't get those exhortations because they don't read the Bible and they don't go to church. Or they go to church and they hear three points in a poem. Here's what I know. When I read the Bible, I read it for me. You ever read the Bible and you think, oh, so-and-so should see this. Don't worry about so-and-so. You're reading that because God wants to deal with you. All right? And if they're close enough to you that you can talk to, then good. But too often, we have no relationship with someone. We want to tell them how to live. That doesn't work too well. But when you read the Bible, let it speak to you. And you follow its precepts. You know, someone who lives a righteous life is far more powerful, far more effective than someone who's, you know, telling everybody else how to live. People need examples. We're to be those examples. And all I know is that, you know, the life that God has laid out, the life of discipleship, the life of following Christ, is a beneficial life. It's an abundant life. And, you know, I, I remember early on in my Christian experience, I met a man who whose life would be characterized by, you know, constant uh, turmoil, persecution, suffering. I mean, this man really had a rough life. And I met him one day, and we spent about an hour together. When I left, I left in tears because he had such an intimate relationship with God that I left there jealous. 